Welcome to The Leadership Mind with Massimo Bacchus. This show is all about the mindset of leadership, the stories, assumptions, self-limiting beliefs, and perspectives that either create or destroy your ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with experts in leadership development, coaching, learning and development, talent management, human resources, and most of all, from those in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm an executive and team coach and leadership development facilitator with a relentless curiosity and passion for helping people, teams and organizations thrive in pursuit of their vision and purpose. The pursuit of purpose is a combination of doing your actions and behaviors and being, how you accept and allow. The mind is where the connection between our being and doing and our intent and actions occurs. The goal is to bring you new perspectives, insights and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes, curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly, and community, where we all share in our growth together. Let's explore the leadership mind. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Leadership Mind podcast. Today, I'm joined by Scott Millward. Really excited to be talking to Scott. I've known him for uh, several years now. And when you have somebody that you meet uh, earlier in your career and you come back around and um, the conversations just become more rich and more in-depth, and I still learn so much from him, I'm sure you all will as well. Scott's a senior HR executive and academic researcher who's held leadership roles at several Fortune 500 companies across finance, entertainment, and hospitalities. Most recently, he's uh, led talent development and communication functions at Panera Bread, and he actually sat on the crisis team and led HR change management during the pandemic, uh, which I'm I'm sure was a really challenging task and a very interesting time. Previous to Panera, uh, Scott was both the chief learning officer and the chief talent officer at Farmers Insurance a VP in learning and development at Warner Brothers Entertainment and a VP in organizational development at uh, Fox Network Group. Uh, In addition to his corporate experience, Scott's a professor at seven different colleges. He's worked as a human factors engineer and coaches uh, competitive debate. Scott, welcome again, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. (laughs) Thanks, Moss. I appreciate that. I like to start off all these conversations with uh, the origin story. If we think about all these superhero movies that are out there, there's some fascination. Joseph Campbell was onto something in his writing. And I'm curious, what was your origin story that, um, you know, what were the series of events that came about that that brought you to um, the superpowers that you unleash on, on the luck <laughs> today? Uh, well, I appreciate you making the assumption that I have superpowers. That's a, that's a good place to start. Uh, means I've already sort of pulled the wool over your eyes, which coincidentally is one of my superpowers. <laughs> so I think everybody's got a superpower. It's proven otherwise. Well, let's, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating question. I don't, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know that my origin story um, is as, as dramatic as falling into a vat of, uh, you know, chemicals and, you know, learning how to fly or something like that. But I, I do think that from a very early age, um, I was really interested in um, sort of this external uh, view of the world and, and as opposed to sort of this introspective internal view of the world. Um, my favorite superhero, actually, comic book hero, was Daredevil. Uh, so if you're you know familiar with the Marvel comics, he really didn't have any 
true superpowers. I mean, his superpower was he was just really sensitive to the environment and and can kind of like you know like hear people's heartbeats and know when they were lying and that sort of thing. And um, and so that that radar um, concept, it's it's what he called his superpower, was always super fascinating to me. And and ultimately, you know, fast forward thirty years, I, I wound up writing a a doctoral thesis on something called situation awareness, uh, which is the ability to really understand what's going on in the world around you. So, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily know why. I don't think I fell into a vat of acid or anything like that, but I, I know, you know, that, that's always fascinated me to think about the thoughts of other people. And so you just mentioned your doctoral thesis. You have spanned both, you know, the academic world and the corporate world within the space of talent and leadership development. Um, and that's kind of rare. You find that people tend to, to find home in one space, but you've been able to bridge both. Like what's what's um, driven you to do that and what value do you get in both environments? Well, I think I'm naturally pretty restless um, and, and somewhat you know, entrepreneurial. And so I, I tend to think of my, my stops along the way as opportunities to build you know, great infrastructure and then move on and let somebody else run them. Um, so I've, I've really chased big questions and um, rarely do they stay in one spot. I, I think the, the cool thing about being able to bounce around between academics, uh, internal roles, external consulting roles, is that you, you really do get to walk around the cup and see it from all different angles. Um, and I think um, ultimately, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if you're a golfer, but, you know, makes for a better shot. You know, <laughs> you, you wind up... Uh, seeing things that maybe you wouldn't have seen uh, if you only had the one perspective. You know, not only does it make a better shop, but um, don't you find that the experience itself is improved when you are more mindful of what's happening? Even if you end up affirming what you were already going to do, there's a greater awareness that it was the right decision. I, I think I find that I appreciate the experience more um, because there is a, a texture to it from all these different lenses that maybe I wouldn't have had if I was only thinking about it, uh, you know, from one lens. Um, you know, I, I, one of my favorite authors um, is Liz Wiseman. And while she's not super prolific, just the multipliers work, I, I absolutely love. I think it's fantastic stuff. And the fact that she did a, a role that was similar to my role at Oracle makes it even cooler, right? She's kind of my hero. Um, but she, she had a great quote in one of her TED talks about, you know, how much do we, how much, uh, uh, is it creativity or wonder or magic? Uh, that was the word magic. How much magic do we miss because it's not on the agenda? And, and so I think that's just fascinating. And when I unpack that, I think there's this expectation that we bring into to situations based on our lens. So if I'm an you know, internal corporate guy, I've got to solve it this way and I've got to focus on ROI. Uh, well, you know, if I'm not always bringing just that lens, you know, maybe I see a little magic in the situation because as a researcher, I'm fascinated just by answering questions and understanding how humans work. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled uh, with the fact that I've had these different experiences and I hope that for the rest of my life, I continue in that vein. Yeah, well, there's a lot to be said for um, motivation in the pursuit of a good question. Um, is there a question right now that you're in pursuit of or that's driving you currently? Yeah, yeah, there really is. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm really fascinated. You, you started with origin stories and I'm really fascinated by creating better origin stories at the, the beginning of 
a person's lifespan at, at a company. Um, you know, I just I just left uh, Panera not too long ago, and uh, my my story through that was really fascinating. I think about how I was set up, and then where I ended up, and they were in such different spots. And it was a great journey, by the way. Nothing nothing bad at all to say about Panera. Loved it. Um, but I think about the the opportunities uh, that that companies have to set people up for success at the beginning, and, and what that really looks like, and how it matures over time. Um, you know, I, I give you an example. I you know have done some work with fast growing companies that are early on in their development stage. You know, 30, 40, 50 million, and they're in this high growth mode, and they think to themselves, like, oh, we just got to get bodies. I need more sales reps. I need more service reps. Uh, and so they're pulling people in and they're just trying to you know, create a factory that's very, very efficient. Often that results in an onboarding program that is you know, 48 hours to 72 hours long. And it's this, hey, you know, we're moving fast. They'll catch up. And if they don't, they're probably not the people we want. We just want people that can kind of catch up. And so they're not putting in the infrastructure that really creates stickiness with people uh, to, to come in and ultimately be successful down the road when the pace of change either slows or goes in a different direction. And then they find that a year, two years, three years later, when they have grown and they have met these goals, they have to go back and re-engineer because they haven't created a great program. They've created some great individual players. You know, it's kind of like a college sports team. You know, you know you're only going to have these folks for four years. So create a system that's repeatable from the very beginning and you'll you'll you know spurn a bunch of champions as opposed to just pursuing that that one dream of, of you know we got to grow 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 we're going to win right now. I really I really think about taking the long view. So right now I'm thinking about how do I uh, really uh, you know take the process for setting up successful people coming in and and articulate that better so that ultimately I could help companies build it. Yeah. Well, a couple of things. One, I I'm curious about this notion of incubation, which is very different. You know. At the surface, what I hear you talking about is onboarding, but incubation, I imagine, is is so much more and that maybe there's been a myth of onboarding and that's what you're trying to solve. Um, There's two parts to this question. One is, what is it that you think that new employees need um, in an incubation period in order to have that stickiness long term? And what is it that the organizations need or need to be um, aware of in order to make that happen? Well, ironically, I don't think it's too dissimilar from what all employees need uh, at any time during their journey. I mean, yeah, there's there's a, a few things that are probably different, but um, I, I think a lot of it starts with um, the basics, right? There's a clarity of understanding. There's the, you know, what is it that we're trying to solve here collectively? So give me this this big picture why. Uh, you know, it's kind of the Simon Sinek stuff, right? You got to start with why. But you're talking um, about an organizational why. You're not talking about that individual's why for being at the organization. Well, I think it's a little bit of both, Moss, right? So when you make a decision to come to work, um, I, you know, I don't care what type of job it is. Um, there is a motivation behind that decision. And, and once you get there, you, you tell yourself this was a good choice or this was a bad choice. And it's either because you are okay with the trade-offs that you've made and you are just sort of gutting it out because it gives you a paycheck or it's because it's fulfilling some sort of other meaning for you. Um, and so helping, you know, sort of take that relationship or that contract between uh, the individual and, and the company and think of it less as 
you know what, we're just going to have, uh, we're going to assimilate you into our, uh, you know, the, the, the Borg, and we're going to have you sort of behave the way we want you to. And we're going to have you be a piece of the machine. But if there's a way we can rethink that contract and make it more like a symbiosis, um, more like a, a, like a partnership or um, uh, another guy that I really like, Ben Kasnoka, several years ago, he wrote uh, a, a book um, uh, that described as allyship. Uh, where you can, you know, kind of create this partnership between the new employee and the and the, uh, the the company, where you're both getting something out of it. Um, I think that's the part that is often missed. Um, and and you know, just really quick going back to assimilation, I think it's not you're you're not missing out on having the employee just sort of uh, you know retire in place and think, okay, I'll just do this for nine months and then I'll leave. You're also missing out on the wonderful opportunity that all new people bring to problems. There is nothing quite like having a fresh perspective. So if you're not really forming that relationship formally and and just mining those new folks for ideas about how they could be more successful and how you as a company could be more successful, boy, you're leaving a lot on the table. So I, yeah, you know, it, it doesn't really answer your question. I think it's a it's a pretty nuanced question, and so the answer itself is pretty big and complex. Yeah. Well, what I hear you saying is that it's that it's bi-directional, this incubation period, that there is something that um, both parties need and that where maybe we've looked at onboarding as a transaction that takes place. I'm going to get you the handbook and these tools and get you set up on your laptop and meet you to people over coffee. Um, that instead of being tactical, that it's relational and that it's ongoing and that there's an opportunity, like a, a moment of insight that happens when someone is new that accessing that both can speak to their individual why, but the organization's why, and give them an opportunity to contribute value early on, um, you know, endearing them to the organization and the, and the people there. But there's a different way of thinking about this incubate, in, incubating period is more relational. I like this term allyship um, to ensure long-term success, mutual long-term success. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I don't want to discount the transactional stuff because it's it's sort of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If you don't get somebody a computer on the first day and you don't tell them, you know, where the bathrooms are, like it's it's not going to matter if you don't take care of their basic needs. Um, but yes, there's this um, this need to uh, not only feel like I belong and I made a good choice, but you know, who do I talk to when I when I've got to go get answers? You know, is there somebody that's actually making me feel sort of like I, I'm I'm welcome and I'm valued and I've I've got something to bring to the table. Um, so yeah, it's an ecosystem is really what it is. Um, and, and I think you got to care for all parts of it. And, and, you know, companies that try to over, you know, engineer the process and just, you know, make it run on its own and forget the human element. Uh, I think it winds up coming up to kind of bite them later on. So for those organizations that are growing fast and in trying to get those bodies for those roles, um, the question you're trying to solve is, how to support that programmatically so that it's not reactive, um, but that it's in, intentional and methodical. Uh, yeah, in a nutshell, I think there's uh, probably two pieces to, to it. There's the transactional and programmatic pieces. How do you actually get the system to be set up so that you can intake people in an effective way and take all of those barriers out of the way so they can really concentrate on the second piece, which is how do I just get really good at my job in the service of what the company is trying to do. And who are the people that are going to help me with that? I, you know, I've, I've joined a team. Learning is a team sport. It's not, it's not individual, you know? And, and so 
you know, how do I figure out how to be the best player I can be on this team? Yeah. And where are the resources to get that, to get those answers yourself, right? It's very 100%. frustrating when you're new and you're like, I have a lot of questions, but I don't know where to get the answers. 100%, yeah. Yeah. Um, so a, a, a slight pivot, but I'm, I'm curious if we take a step back over the, sure. the arc of your career and you have um, played significant executive roles in driving the strategy of, of talent development across many organizations. What's a... Um, a theme or a term or something that you think is that is either either overused or misused. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the list is as long as my arm, right? We've got so much jargon, particularly coming out of the HR space. It, uh, I think it sort of gets in the way of, of true shared meaning. Um, you know, one that, that leaps off the page for me that's I think pretty big right now is accountability. Um, you know, I, I, I think the way that that term has been used typically is, um, you know, I, I'm going to hold somebody accountable for something. So I, I think as a leader, you're accountable for the trust that you put in others uh, and, and your own behavior. That's what you're accountable for. You're accountable for, for setting the vision and helping people be successful. Um, I don't think you are accountable for the decisions that other people make. Um, I think that's a standard that pretty much nobody can achieve. Um, I think you are accountable for reacting to those decisions. Uh, so once again, it goes back to your own behavior. That's what you're accountable for. Um, you know, but we, you know, I think we try to, um, you know, sort of set all of these rules in place to force behavior. And we wind up sort of pounding out the space for people to be creative. Uh, we, we ring out the space for them to feel psychologically safe um, because we feel like accountability means that we have to be controlling. And that's where I see it sort of misused or overused. Accountability to me is not about control. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's about allowing people the space to make their own decisions and to try to solve things their own way. Let me make sure I understand what you're saying, because I, I think you're making an important distinction that accountability is viewed as something that we do to others. And what you're saying is that accountability is actually the responsibility that we take for ourselves. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair way of putting it. Um, now, when you are a, a leader of people, um, you know, the reflection of other people's decisions is a part of how you take responsibility for yourself because you ultimately have to create the conditions for them to make decisions which are in the best interest of themselves and the company. So it maybe expands a little bit of a wider net as you're a, a leader. But yeah, I think the essence of what you said is, is spot on. What do you attribute to either the people within organizations or the organizational context itself allowing for us to get this wrong? Um, why do we get it wrong? Is that what you're asking? Um, boy, I, I mean, if I could bottle that and sell it, man, <laughs> I, um, I think that part of it is, um, the, well, at least I'm going to speak just internally now, right? I think this is very different when you're you know, talking about an academic environment or, um, you know, something that's maybe a little more social, uh, but I think in, um, in companies, particularly big companies, um, there's a lot invested in the hierarchical structure. Uh, there's a lot invested in um, power over others and, and what that does for people 
um, both in terms of their actual security, their financial security, but also their psychological security, how it makes people feel. Um, and so I think that as long as you have people in decision-making roles that uh, you know, feel important, feel uh, needed, feel powerful as a result of this, there's no reason to rethink accountability. Uh, now, the ones that do it really well, I mean, there's a lot of literature on this, right? There's the servant leadership stuff. There's, you know, I, I could list, you know, as long as my arm books about, about this. Um, sure, we have great examples, but I think that those, you know, tend to be um, people who have sort of woken up, smelled the coffee and realized they have to work on leadership as a craft. And that by definition means they are taking accountability for their own behaviors. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess maybe it comes down to a little bit of uh, the fact that, that, you know, humans are maybe a little mentally lazy <laughs> just by design. And so that's why we are where we are. That's a, that's a possible, uh, that's a hypothesis there that, that yeah, could be inherently lazy for sure. Um, <laughs> And and you're right. It 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 does come down to uh, the notion of, of waking up and smelling the coffee, being self aware that um, that there's inherent responsibility um, that starts with oneself. I think this speaks to your work, right? I mean, this is what you know. A, a really good executive coach um, isn't the mirror; they're the the stand holding the mirror. Because, you know, if you don't look in the mirror directly, you're going to see whatever it's reflecting. And, and I think a lot of people think they're looking in the mirror, but the mirror is actually a little cockeyed. So they're seeing the reflection of what's going on to the left of them or the right of them. And you're saying, no, no, no. You're steering the mirror right back at people and saying, look, this is what it looks like to be you. And that's, that's really hard for folks. But boy, it just speaks to the value of executive coaching and why when you do it right, you can get people over that hump to actually take accountability for the, the impact that their behavior has, not their intention, because there's a huge space between impact and intention, right? Oh my gosh, yeah, that could be an entirely different conversation. <laughs> uh, how, how we all get ourselves into trouble when we fall in love with our intent and uh, you know don't realize that the impact of our actions. Um, when you think about the all of the research that, that, that you've either created yourself, that you have been a part of, um, what's like the one kernel of truth, you know, scientific truth in this space that, that you wish everybody knew about or had access to um, that maybe would be the catalyst for others, but what's like, what's the starting place? Um, boy, I mean, I... Um... I don't know that there's a single kernel of truth out there. I mean, that's the whole point of research is that they're uh, just theories awaiting to be disproven. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I was pretty fascinated um, by the scope and scale of the Google research that came out. Maybe it's got to be, gosh, a, a decade old now, um, Project Oxygen and then Project Aristotle that, you know, I'm not going to do it justice, but to sum it up, essentially, you know, leadership matters. That, that people's performance is genuinely and severely impacted uh, by the quality of the relationships and uh, that they have around them at work, and particularly the relationship of the person who is directing their efforts. Um, this is also sort of the central theme of, of Liz Wiseman's work, right, of multipliers, that um, we could see, uh, you know, a terribly brilliant individual turned into, uh, you know, essentially a paperweight. 
uh, by a, a leader that is a real diminisher in, in her terms. Yep. Um, and, and that's really, you know, Google, you know, God bless them. You know, they got all the time and the research and the, the money and the you know, resources and these brilliant people. They said, you know, people talk about this all the time and it sounds intuitively smart, but let's actually rigorously test it. And so I love the fact that inside of a company, they went and they did the rigor to the rigorous testing and they came up with the solution. Um, and, and essentially what they found was what we more or less already know that, uh, you know, there is such a thing as an ideal leader. They're, they're typically a good coach. They typically don't micromanage. You know, they, um, I think one of the, the real key findings is that um, a, a truly good leader actually expressed both interest and concern for for the team members that they lead and, and beyond just their success in a self-serving way, but you know, their well-being as human beings. And that that connection makes somebody want to actually work harder for that individual, um, which again, I think it's something that you and I probably inherently knew, but uh, to see it you know, proven with a, a big name behind it. Um, and you know, the, the and again, I've, I've mentioned it before, this goes back to Amy Edmondson's psychological safety work, which was also highlighted in here. Um, I think that now that we're seeing more scientific rigor behind that, people realize that this maybe isn't such a bad starting point. If we started by being a little more humanistic, that that building the the actual tactical role um, might actually come a little easier because we get over some of the hurdles that slow us down around not trusting each other and uh, you know playing things close to the vest and not sharing our ideas and and all of that stuff that really, if we could just get past it, uh, it just creates drag on our ability to be successful. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to Maslow's hierarchy as well, right. because you have to have these fundamental needs met before you can actually flourish, thrive, get into the flow state and, and do that, that meaningful work. Here's a big question that's been, um, that I've been wrestling with and I would love to get your, get your take on it. Sure. Um, and this is not an entire, a new idea at all. Um, but we find ourselves in a place where, and, and I, I feel like I'm stuck seeing everything as a, as a leadership problem because I'm a leadership you know, practitioner. Um, but you look at organizations and you say, this organization believes everybody here is a leader because they want to empower folks to be leaders, leaders of themselves, leaders of their community, leaders within the organization, not by title, but by, by how they show up, accountability. And then you recognize that you've created a hierarchical structure that says in order to be more here, you need to become a leader or take on more leadership responsibilities, but there's only so many spots. Um, you essentially program people to look at that and say, well, for me to be more, for me to be appreciated, accepted more, valued more, paid more, I need to be more of a leader. But fundamentally, the role of a leader when we shift into people management and leading organizations is very different than just leading oneself. It's incredibly difficult work to do, and it's, um, it's fraught with failure because you're talking about being responsible to some extent for other people. And um, so time and time again, I have clients that are frustrated, whether it's the Peter principle, they've reached their level of incompetence, um, or whether they should have stayed as a highly functioning individual contributor. And now, you know, they're no longer the, the top salesperson, they're the sales director, and they're miserable, but they don't want to admit it because they define their self-worth on that title. Yeah, um, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, let's start with uh, with fear, um, because I think it dovetails into this this notion we were just talking about around you know psychological safety. Um, 
you know, the other misconception I think about psychological safety is that it's all about what the environment gives to you. Um, and it's true that you have to have an environment um, that is open to you being able to, you know, share ideas and, and, and contribute. Um, but I actually think psychological safety is something that you give to yourself. And uh, at, least, at least a large part of it is. Um, I, I cannot tell you how many times in my career that I have had um, either successful or unsuccessful leadership experiences where I was not the formal leader within the structure. Uh, I wasn't told, you know, you, you now have this role. Uh, you know, probably the most recent example is actually um, at Panera during the, the crisis, right? So the, you know, the pandemic hits uh, back in March of last year. Uh, we had no chief HR officer at the time. That role had been vacant, vacant for some time. And uh, we had a series of folks that had come in and sort of run it in an interim basis. Um, and at the time that the pandemic hit, the, the individual that was running it was an outside consultant, uh, had been a CHRO, uh, but really had only been inside our company for a couple of months, didn't, didn't really have um, the rich history to, to understand the full impacts on our operation. Um, but I, I did, you know, I had been working with the company for years. I had reported up through operations. I'd been on the ops side. And so I, I didn't wait for somebody to say, Hey, you know, are you going to, uh, uh, you know, take charge of the, the change management effort here? Uh, or, you know, it's designated for you to do. Um, I, I just sort of jumped in and started trying to pull people together that recognized that there was an issue. And, and we tried to solve some of those issues where we could. Uh, we created a food pro, um, program for our associates to be able to come get uh, meals to, to feed them uh, on uh, you know, Fridays. They could come in and they could get a family meal for free uh, to help sustain them because they were losing work and wages and the ability to get their discounted you know, associate meals. Uh, we, we did um, uh, an organizational restructure and, and thought through how do we humanely uh, furlough people in a way that wasn't going to significantly impact their prospects for a job long term. And so, you know, these are these are things that you would normally have sort of a structured leader do, right? And and we just we just sort of all pulled up by the bootstraps. And um, you know, I didn't do all of these things. I just sort of helped coordinate all of these things. And so, um, yeah, I was I was nervous because it's not my job. Uh, and yeah, I was nervous because I've never been a CHRO. So what gives me the right but I just did it, right? And uh, I, I got over the fear because it was really on behalf of other people. You know, I've also had that backfire, Moss, right? <laughs> I've, had, I've had lots of times where I've stepped out of my lane and I've had people, uh, you know, sort of put me back in it. Um, but, it but it never deterred me uh, from stepping out of that lane moving forward. And so I think this notion that leadership is somehow a finite resource and it's only the number of official leadership positions you have in a hierarchy is fundamentally flawed. I think leadership opportunities are all around you all the time, uh, but it takes a little bit of um, a little bit of grit. Um, it takes a little bit of resilience, and maybe even a little bit of creativity and entrepreneurship to go actually create them and and bring them to life. Yeah, what do you attribute your resilience to? The, the fact that you stepped up as a leader, and you know, we're told that you stepped out of your lane, um, but to not let that deter you. So oh, I, I mean, that's hundred percent. My dad, that was my, that was my upbringing. You know, my dad, um, you know, he, he was many things, but he was not afraid of what other people thought of him. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he would make an effort to try to do what he thought was right. And I don't know that he was always right. I mean, 
sometimes what you think is right is, is, you know, you got a little piece of truth by the tail. Um, but you know, one thing, anybody who knew my dad or whoever met him, uh, knew that he was not going to, uh, let your opinion of him, uh, get in the way of doing what he thought was, was the best thing. Uh, it's not to say that he was callous by any stretch or that he was a jerk. He was actually a, a really compassionate guy. Um, but you can't, you gotta have a thick skin. Um, you know, I, I, I remember another, um, circumstance that happened when I was at one of the insurance companies and. Um, there was no head of, of procurement uh, at the time they were trying to hire for that role. And, and I had worked very closely with the procurement team in a prior uh, life. And I really took an interest in what they were doing. I just thought it was a cool science. And I discovered that the better you knew the procurement guy uh, or, or, or gal, the, the better the contract was going to be for you in the end. And so when I got to this new place and they didn't have a head of procurement and I was going through the process, the process was incredibly painful. And it was hundreds of emails going back and forth and they had outsourced pieces of it. And that the outsourced piece didn't talk to the, the end source piece. And, and so I started documenting it thinking, gosh, when this new person gets here, I'm going to show them what the process looks like. And I'm going to actually partner with that person and help them to, to make it better. And so the, the new person arrived and, and right on schedule, I introduced myself, said, look, I'm totally fascinated by your profession and what you do. You know, here's the current process and the pain that it is causing. Here's all the documentation. And this dude, you know, was like, you know, a deer in headlights. You should, you know, he's like, what, who is this crazy person coming and telling me how to do my job on day one? But to his credit, he sort of, uh, you know, after he sort of took a step back and sort of understood what I was trying to do, uh, he, he really did try to partner with me. And now the interesting thing was, his boss, actually might've even been his boss's boss, who was a senior vice president, um, actually called me into the office, you know, several weeks later and read me the riot act for going directly to his new person instead of coming to him. And that to me was fast. And so this goes back to accountability and power and structure, right? So he wasn't interested in the fact that I was partnering with his guy to make it better. He was interested in the fact that I had somehow in his mind, gone around him to solve a problem that he had to be the guy solving the problem. So fascinating. And, and how this get, stuff get plays credit out. Or, or be associated with the credit of that. Uh, that is fascinating. And, and kudos to the new person to, to, to hearing that and incorporating it. Cause that would be, um, that could be a lot, especially coming from someone who's more, you know, more senior in the organization. Um, and I came on strong too. I, I, I really respect the guy. I, I still think he's a really good uh, procurement guy. Yeah. I've never heard somebody say that they're fascinated about the world of procurement. Nothing wrong with procurement, but, but um, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. fascinated by everything. Massimo, come on, man. That's part of my problem. No, that's, that's the thing. I'm fascinated by people that are fascinated by the obscure, you know, and somebody obsesses in some, you know, obscure detail or some craft like that fascinates me. I'm not necessarily wired that way myself, but the psychology of people that are yourself included. Um, I admire that quality. I guess is what I'm trying to say. I appreciate it. You're, you're taking a blemish and you're making it look real good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to pivot. We're going to just, just like some kind of quick hit questions that I, I want you to answer. Don't overthink them. There's no right answer and there's no okay. wrong answer. Um, but it's more about um, kind of tapping into to the psychology of, of Scott, your thinking, your worldview, how you see things. 
If you could have dinner with anyone, alive or dead, who would it be and why? Oh, geez. Um, isn't this where you need to like take a break and hear from your sponsors, like Blue Apron or something? Like, <laughs> give me a second yeah, to think about. Fantastic sponsor. One thing. Geez, the the list that is such a hard question for somebody that is you know self admitted you know short short attention span you know loves to learn because I I mean the list is just so long I you know probably somebody let's go way way back probably somebody like a Da Vinci like a Leo Da Vinci right. We're so full, we're so informal. I can call him Leo. Yeah. Um, you know. So so why Leo? Um, you know. I think for for probably two reasons. Um, one is because he was uh, he was a polymath, right? He saw. You know. So I, I'm really fascinated by people that are um, fascinated by lots of different things and like to go deep in lots of different things. So I, I'd want to know what what it was that sort of like distracted him and caught his attention to help him move from place to place in part because I kind of want to understand that in me. Like, why does that happen for me? Um, I, I think, you know, he, he had, you know, he was the original design thinker, right? I mean, he, he did design thinking before it was, you know, some sort of cool, you know, Stanford D school thing. Um, and so, you know, I want to get at his creative process. Like, how did he frame problems in order to ultimately solve them? Um, and then just the fact that he was, he was so brilliant and so out there that he was able to actually sort of break barriers, including just being himself, right? I mean, you know, the, the guy was, was gay when being gay wasn't like something you saw on TV, right? I mean, it was. And so he could, he could do what he did while being who he was in a time where that was just really impossible, right? But he pulled it off. Um, and so that's, you know, another super passionate area of mine is just, I think we are really not unleashing the full capability of humanity right now. Um, and I would want to like learn from him, like, was that, was it deliberate that you, you know, like, was there a way that you could spread that ability? Uh, and that's the problem I wish that he would have solved. Like, how do you tackle society and reinvent that? Yeah. But what was, what was Da Vinci's mindset? Yeah. Uh, to I wish be I could bottle that. that. Yeah, we got to work on that time machine. Uh, uh, but see, that's a good one. You could have picked anybody, but but Da Vinci, that that's that works. That works. Um, what's something that you believe? This could be professionally, personally, spiritually, whatever, but what's something that you believe that other people may think to be insane? Um I I think um <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of people sort of, you know, look at me cockeyed in my, uh, in my life. I mean, I, I get up really early. Um, I, in, uh, you know, don't mind a little bit of hard physical pain and labor. Uh, you know, as you know, I've talked to you about this. I, I do construction for fun uh, just cause I like seeing things come into the world. So, you know, I did office conversion for a friend uh, not too long ago and love that. So I think people think that's a little weird that you got this, you know, guy with a PhD who loves to sling a hammer um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, probably one of the things is, um, I, I'm a firm believer in this notion that bad is stronger than good. And I mean, I'm a pretty optimistic dude. And so, you know, that on its surface may be, you know, kind of a head scratcher. Uh, but what I mean from that is, uh, you know, how do you take, uh, really tough circumstances and, and turn them into opportunity? 
And, and I feel like it's easier to do when you're faced with conflict or loss uh, or, or some sort of like embarrassment or something that is really a struggle that that tends to bring out the best in, in me and in others. And that it's not that you don't want to succeed. You don't want to have good times and enjoy them, but I feel like the good times are less likely to produce growth. Um, and there's some research out there to back this up. I, you know, somebody actually, I think wrote an article bad is stronger than good. And I, I, I will forget the, the author's work. Um, but it is really a, a part of my life to think through the, the bad stuff and, and really try to be reflective about how I can turn it into a positive. Otherwise, you know, it feels like what was the point of going through it? You know, that even the hard times that, that they're a gift and that there's a perspective to be taken on that there's value in it. Um, I'll tell you, I, I wish that was a lesson that I had learned earlier in life, you know, yeah. and I, from my own experience, I find that you only learn that lesson by going through it and I'm a slow learner. So maybe it took me more times than it should have, but the sooner you can have that perspective because these bad things will happen. Um, but how you choose to respond to them, you know, um, that makes all the difference. Has, has there been um, something like this that, that's been like a, a moment of, of insight or clarity that shifted your worldview and your perspective in a meaningful way and opened up um, a new way of being, living, leading? I've, I've had many. Um, yeah, as you, you pointed out, my career has been a little meandering. And so there's been several professional ones, uh, many personal ones. Um, probably the, the biggest um, shift that I can think of is, is I lost my dad last year um, on January 1st, 2020, uh, just before really the world kind of changed. Um, so I lost my dad. Um, I, I lost my, my world along with everybody else. I lost my job. Uh, so yeah, 2020 was not a, a spectacular year by any real, you know, sort of tangible measure. Um, I've also never grown so much as a human being. Um, I have never been uh, happier than I am today with the direction that my career is going. Uh, I, I stopped spending, uh, you know, three weeks a month on an airplane. Uh, and I started spending four weeks a month at home with my family. Uh, I immediately lost 10 pounds. I felt healthier. I was sleeping better. Like, uh, and it's not because of the pandemic and because I lost my dad and because I lost my job. Like those things didn't cause all this to happen, but it did open up space to cause me to reflect on what I'm doing with the, the gift of time that I have on this planet. And I made some very deliberate choices to spend it doing things that were more enjoyable, uh, including things like talking to you. I mean, this, you know, to me, uh, you know, last I checked, I'm not getting paid for this unless you want to, you know, send me a six pack of beer. But, uh, you know, it you know is, Northwest IPAs, I'll get that in the mail. Oh, for I, I'm, I'm all about the IPAs, man. Hazies. Love those. Yeah, hazies. I got you covered. I got uh, you covered. But I, I would I would do this all day, every day if I could, just because it is it's fulfilling. Um, I, I hope that it's useful to somebody that sees it. Uh, and, and it really is uh, something that makes me feel like I'm uh, I'm doing something worthwhile. So it, it sort of gives me a little bit of purpose. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for you doing this, and to hear you say that you've never been happier, you know, than than you are right now, given what you've been through, and uh, it's it's the testament of perspective, Scott. 
Um, and it will help people. It does help people because at the end of the day, all we really have is the perspective that we take. I mean, um, I think if you listen to any leadership, self-development, you know, podcast, and the, the question is like, what's the book you recommend? Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is probably the most recommended book that I can think of. Yeah. And it's because it's undisputable. You know, no, no one can compare. You, you think about what that man went through and the fact that the power of perspective, um, I mean, it, 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 it is the make or break on what any, what any given day can be or could not be for you. So, um, I couldn't agree more. Um, thank you. Uh, one last question for you. Is there anything that you would like listeners to know how they could find you, how they can connect with you to, to learn more about you and, um, help you answer some of the big questions that you're noodling on? Uh, that's the beauty of LinkedIn, isn't it? You know, that's, uh, you know, you, you can find me very easily on LinkedIn and that's, that's how you can contact me. Uh, uh, you know, I've got a little bit of my philosophy out there. I don't post probably as often as I should, but I'm, I'm working on it. You know, I'm a work in progress, like, uh, like everybody else. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, I would love to, to hear any you know, perspectives that people have on the things that we've talked about or any way that I can help. Um, you know, it's, it's a small world that, that does the sort of work that we do. And uh, in, in some ways, it becomes a labor of love. And so the reward is, uh, it, it's often just knowing that there are other people that are wrestling with the same questions that you have, and that ultimately have maybe a, a shred of insight, uh, or another, another big question that, that I could pursue, uh, which is, you know, ultimately what makes me tick is I'm always looking for that next big question to answer. The ever curious, in, indeed. Uh, all right, Scott. Well, thanks again, and um, let's do this again in the future. Um, and I, I like really that. Time. Thanks, Mossimo. Thank you for listening to an episode of The Leadership Mind. New episodes will be coming out every few weeks, so please stay tuned. And in the meantime, think about what stories are you telling yourself? What realities are you crafting in your mind? It may not be true and may be limiting your ability to connect, lead, and grow. Thanks for listening and have a great day.